Okay, I turned it on. Are we good this time? There we go. Well, good morning again to everybody. Uh, this week we are going to be back in the book of Isaiah, looking at the fourth of the four servant songs. Before we jump into it, too, I just want to say this. Um, it's sometimes really easy in the course of life and this world that we live in, in our day-to-day life, in our interactions with people in our life, whether we're witnessing to people, sharing our faith, whether it's just living our life as Christians, to get swallowed up by so many things and to lose sight of what is the simple central truth of the gospel. And so today, by God's grace, we find ourselves in a section of scripture where we're going to focus in on that central truth of the gospel. The previous three servant songs that we've looked at in the book of Isaiah, all three of them have declared to us God's intention to bless his people through this servant, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question, though, that we are repeatedly facing as we think about this, as we're faced with this promise of God, his declaration to bless his people is simply the question of how. How can God do that in light of the sinfulness of these people, in light of the sinfulness of each and every one of us? How can that be? A couple sermons ago, we looked at the righteousness of God as it was revealed in his law, that sin demands God's curses and not God's blessing. And so the simple question that we're faced with is how can God bless his people in light of their sin? And this is the very heart of the gospel. The answer to that question is simply this, that God can bless his people because this servant, because Jesus Christ has suffered in their place. And, and if you don't remember anything else today, just remember that. That as Christians, that's what we believe. And if you're sitting here today and you're, you're not a Christian or you're not sure about the faith, you don't know where you're at, this is what we want you to hear. And this is what, brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded of day after day after day. That at the very heart of the gospel is not the moral transformation that the gospel will inevitably bring to us because it will do that. At the heart of the gospel is not some sort of lifestyle that we will live, not some sort of modest dress that we will wear, though the gospel has implications for all of that. At the heart of the gospel is simply this. We're sinners. We deserve God's wrath and judgment. And Jesus Christ, this suffering servant, has bore our sin, has taken the punishment that we deserved so that God can bless us. As Christians, there are thousands of implications of the gospel. There are thousands of results from the gospel. And if we're not careful, those implications and those results will swallow up the gospel and we'll lose sight of this most central fact. He died for us. I mean, if we can remember that, we've got the heart of this thing right before us. It's interesting because God desires to bless a people, people who are rebellious and sinful, and God has gone to the greatest lengths ever imagined to do that. And here's the hard thing about the gospel. Not that it's complicated at its core. Jesus died for us, for our benefit. But here's what's complicated. Most people struggle with that. 
with the freeness and the gift of the gospel. Most people have this inherent desire to earn their own salvation, to say that because I did this and this, therefore God must accept me. Or some people are so acutely aware of just how broken this world is, they've suffered. They've suffered injustice themselves. They are faced day after day with the hardships of a broken world. And for them, the gospel might just seem too good to be true. You mean to tell me that there's coming a day when nobody will ever mourn again, when nobody will ever hurt, when every tear will be wiped away because of what this one has done for us? And some people think it's just too good to be true. I came across this statement last week as I was preparing for the sermon. It's this. Most people don't have the imagination for reality. Most people don't have the imagination for reality. Now, this is the climax of these other three servant songs. We've been leading up to this point, and we've seen allusions to how it is that God would bless his people. We've heard that God desires to bless his people, that he will bless his people. And so then the question, of course, is how will he bless his people? But this idea that God himself in the second person of the Trinity The eternal Son of God would descend from heaven, take on human flesh, live a life, not not in front of the cameras, not for all to see. For 30 years, he lives off in a corner, as it were, unknown by so many. And the ones who knew him just thought, we know this, this is Joseph's boy. Nothing special about him. And then for three years, when he turns about 30, he enters into this public ministry He's hated by those that he came to save, by his own people he's absolutely rejected, by the religious leaders who should have had an acute eye for him. He is told to get lost, we want nothing to do with you. He is finally pushed to the point of execution by his people as they cry out, crucify him. He's hung on a Roman cross. But then, three days later, he rises from the dead ultimately ascends to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns from the eternal throne from where he has poured out his spirit upon his people. And for most people, that's just too much for them. We have been so conditioned to think, to feel, to react, and to respond a certain way to certain truth claims. And some of that conditioning's not bad, right? Like, like some of the ways that we've been conditioned to think and feel and react and respond are good. For instance, if my seven-year-old daughter, Danny, comes over to me and she says, Dad, guess what? I was outside, I was playing, and I'm walking along by the creek. There's this creek that runs by our house. And she says, Dad, listen, one of the trees, like its branch leaned over towards me. And at this point, I'm just thinking, well, yeah, it's windy, a little kid, imagination. And she says, no, Dad, you have to understand. It, it leaned down, it grabbed the Frisbee out of the other tree, leaned down and handed me the Frisbee. And then the tree told me, listen, Dad. Danny says, listen, the tree told me that I can't throw the Frisbee around here anymore because the other trees aren't as nice as him. And if it gets caught in a different tree, it's... at that point, I'm just thinking, whoa, okay. We're gonna have to have a little talk here about reality, right? Like, so some of our conditioning isn't bad. We hear certain things and we respond a certain way. But here's the problem, that that a lot of that, so we're conditioned to hear that and go, okay, that's either just like a seven-year-old imagination or I'm gonna be checking the food she ate because maybe there's some sort of food poisoning going on here or something's going on. The problem is, though, 
that God has declared certain truths to us, certain truths that seem so over the top that it's so hard for this world to embrace them. And what happens is those truth claims oftentimes get pushed into the same realm as Danny's little talk about the tree. And we just, we, we, we write them off. And God knows this. God knows how we are, the intent of our heart. So as we left off last week in chapter 50, and we looked at the third of the four servant songs, as you pick up in chapter 51, leading to this climax of the lengths to which God will go through this servant for us, these are some of the things that we hear. And you don't have to turn here. I'm going to work through them quickly. But in Isaiah 51, 1, we hear God say this, listen to me. Listen to me. God knows how hard it is for people to actually hear his truth and to respond to it in a way that will affect us. In 51 verse 2, he calls out to his people, look to Abraham, your father, the father of faith, the one who trusted me so much that he was willing to walk his son up the mountain and sacrifice him. Look to him, this one to whom I have promised to bless you and all the world through him and his seed. And then in 51 verse 4, God says, give attention to me, my people. 51 verse 6, God says, lift up your eyes to heaven. Can you start to feel a theme here? God is calling out to us, listen to me, pay attention to me. What I have to say is important. Verse 51, or, or chapter 51 verse 7, again he says, listen to me. Chapter 51 verse 17 Wake yourself, wake yourself and stand up, O Jerusalem. Now what's interesting about this, sad and amazing all at the same time, is that this is God's people. Jerusalem here is shorthand referring to God's people, those to whom they would say Yahweh is our God and he has to say to his people, wake up, pay attention. I'm about to tell you something. I'm about to reveal something that is so important, so central. You need to wake up out of the sleep that you're in. 52 verse 1, awake, awake. And then we begin our text in chapter 52 verse 13 with this word, behold my servant, which is exactly where we started all the way back in the first servant song. God would have us this morning Behold this servant. Pay attention to the truth of what this servant has done for us. And so with that, I'm going to begin reading in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through the end of 53. It's a long section of text, but it is well worth the time to read it. As a matter of fact, this is one of those sections in Scripture where as a preacher, you are tempted. Like, it's a toss-up right now, and I know that we're supposed to go a certain amount of time, but the temptation is this. Should I just quit after I read this and walk away? So clear, so powerful that it stands on its own. And so we're going to read through this and then we're going to take a little time to look more deeply into it. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. This is on page 613 in the Black Pew Bibles. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. 
Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dying ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, living, stricken, For the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. Wow. That's a lot. And if you're sitting here today like me and you're acutely aware of your own sin, it's powerful. He for us. He for us. Over and over and over again. And just the multitude of the ways that our sin is expressed and talked about. And in all of those ways, every imaginable sin, avenue of sin, transgression of sin, iniquity, every imaginable way, Jesus has taken it all. Now, in many ways, this is very somber. It's sobering. It's heavy for us because of our sin, but it's also meant to be absolutely liberating, absolutely freeing, so that we can walk in confidence. We can be assured of so many truths because of this reality. Now, what I want to do is I want to look briefly through this servant song and focus in on a couple things. Remember, God's people can be blessed because Jesus has suffered in our place. And, and what happens here is so counterintuitive, so against the grain of the way that we would naturally think or expect for these things to happen. And so the first thing that we're going to see in this, as we look at the suffering servant, is we're going to see that exaltation, honor, being high and lifted up, 
comes through humility and shame. Humility and shame. Look at what it says in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now that part of the text, nobody had a problem with when Jesus showed up. They expected this of the king and the Messiah. They expected him to rule and to reign. They expected him to do away with the Romans, to sit on a throne right there in Jerusalem and run the show. And so none of that, none of that is hard, but what comes next is what really gets us. This exaltation, this being high and lifted up is gonna come through humility. Notice what's said here. As many were astonished at you, who's he talking about? He's talking about God's people. We've talked about this exile that they're being pushed into, the fact that because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant, God's people are now being led away into exile. So there's a comparison being made here. Many were astonished. Another way that you can translate that word is horrified, which is a totally different feel, isn't it? If, if I talk about the fact that I, I went to a Cubs game or something like that and, and they said, what happened? I said, man, I was astonished at that game. Maybe it was an extra inning game, walk-off home run or something like that. But if somebody says to me, hey, I saw on the news something happened at the game and I said, yeah, I was horrified. Then you might anticipate a, a helicopter crash or something like that that would grip you and would horrify you. Well, that's the idea of this word, astonished in the sense of horrified. And so he says here, as many were horrified at you, Israel. And then it goes on to talk about his appearance was marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, if you want an insight into what's being talked about, as a matter of fact, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn to the book of Lamentations, which is right after the book of Jeremiah, so you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, they're bigger books, and then there's a smaller book of Lamentations tucked right in there. And the reason is, Lamentations, it's a lament, it's, it's a song of mourning written probably by Jeremiah describing the anguish that Israel, God's people, go through on their way to exile as they are just ravaged by the Babylonians. David and Solomon and their reign and the heights of glory to this, the crash is absolutely unthinkable. This is why people were horrified. You remember that when God led his people in triumph through the nation of Canaan and he pushed out the people before them and he gave the people of God this promised land and then he raises up David and Solomon and now they have this kingdom and it's wonderful and it's beautiful and then because of their unfaithfulness, what takes place to them is absolutely horrifying. Just to get an idea of this, look at chapter two and verse 13 in Lamentations. Speaking of the scorn that now belongs to God's people, we hear this. All who pass along their way, along the way, clap their hands at you. They hiss and they wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty and the joy of all the earth? That's how Jerusalem was known before this. At the height of their glory, it was known as the perfection of beauty and the joy of all the earth. And then fast forward now to verse 20. This is the reality now. Chapter 2, verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their own womb, the children of their tender care? 
Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. This is the kind of thing that they won't show on the newsreel. Can you imagine the desperation? And not a woman, not an isolated event, but women themselves being so desperate, pushed to such great extremes because of their situation that they would resort to eating their own children to survive? Or that prophet and priest in the sanctuary of the Lord where the presence of Almighty God used to dwell, where before when God's presence was there, if there was strange fire brought before them, which is to say there's a story in the Old Testament where two priests bring before the Lord a sacrifice that was not in line with the way that God had ordained the sacrifices and they were struck dead. And now we're to a point though where God's priests and God's prophets are being slaughtered in that very sanctuary? Young men, old men, young women, old women, dead in the streets. I mean, the carnage is unthinkable. You know what it is? It's horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. Now, if you turn back to the book of Isaiah, this is what's being said. As many were horrified at you, and so if you want to get an idea of the comparison, I would just encourage you, read through the book of Lamentations. It's not one of those books we say, hey, you're feeling a little down, you want to get your spirits up? Read Lamentations. But it's a book that will help us because Isaiah makes the comparison between that horror, what happened to God's people, and what God's son would go through on the cross. He makes the comparison. And so if you want to understand the depth of the love of Jesus, Read through that and think about that comparison. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond all of the children of mankind. If you had a mental image that was disturbing in your mind, I apologize for that about the book of Lamentations. I'm, I'm not here to make anybody queasy necessarily, but this is what the word says, that when people would have looked at this suffering servant on the cross, it would have been absolutely horrifying. But then that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. What this is referring to is that through this horror that he would go through, there is going to be a priestly ministry that he offers up. He is going to now offer up a priestly ministry. And what that is is going to unfold for us through the rest of the text. But know this. This ministry will be effective. We hear as we follow along in verse 15, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Whatever he's going to do will be effective. He is gonna render up a priestly ministry because of this horror and we're gonna see that unfold before us. But as we get to verse 53, it's almost like there's a pause in the middle of this. And here's the question that we are faced with today, that each one of us is faced with. Who has believed what he has heard from us? This is the question that poses before mankind over and over and over again. This is, this is why from chapter 51 leading up to that point in 52.13 where we jumped in, there was this call from God over and over again. Look, listen, pay attention. And here's the question, who has believed this? And that's the question for us. Have we believed the message? And let me just say this. Most of us sitting here today are probably Christians and we would say yes to this. 
We have believed the message. But as we work through this, I hope you see avenues of belief that all of us need to ask the Lord to help with. Like, are we believing the gospel in the day-to-day moments when, when we're sitting at our desk, at our job, or whatever it may be, and our boss comes down on us hard, and there is that tendency in that moment to feel like, you know what, I'm just not good enough. Or, or my identity is now shaken. I feel low, I feel little, I feel like he doesn't love me, and I need his approval. And then we're turned back to the gospel. We're turned back to this, which says, you know what? Jesus gave everything, and because he has paid everything for you, you are now fully and completely accepted by God the Father. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has withhold, withheld no blessing from you. You, once an enemy of Jesus, now seated at his table as a child, as a son, as a friend of God through what Jesus has done for you. So in that moment, you don't need 10 principles to have a better life. You need one gospel to believe in that he has given everything so that you can be fully accepted. And it doesn't matter what our bosses think about us. It doesn't even matter if their comments are justified and we have completely screwed everything up. We cannot screw this up because it depends completely on this servant, not on ourselves. And so this is the question. Will we believe the gospel day by day by day by day? when we struggle in our marriages, when we look at our spouse and we think we've hurt our spouse, will we believe that that sin that hurt our spouse was nailed to the cross, done away with, completely gone, washed away by the blood of Jesus? And so Christian, if you're here today and you're thinking, yes, I've believed the gospel, hear this word, we must keep believing the gospel. We must repent of those times we don't believe the gospel and then we must turn back and just simply freely receive that word of grace and forgiveness, acceptance, and adoption. Now, it goes on. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If you would do a survey just of the prior two chapters, you would see that the arm of the Lord represents the power of God Almighty to deliver his people. I was thinking about this. I mean, the analogy still sort of stands true today. I don't know how many of you guys have ever done this. Every now and then, I'll see it on TV or something, an arm wrestling competition, right? You get these guys, and I am not going to do justice to their arms at all, so please hold the laughter. But they're up on the table there like this, and none of them are ever like me, with a sleeve covering their arm. I should have had Xavier come up to do a demonstration for me. That's what I should have done next time, brother. Next time. These guys are up there and they roll up their sleeves or they got the like cut off muscle man thing on and they're bearing their arm. Why? It's a revelation of their strength and power. That's the same idea here. Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now notice the connection between the power and strength of the Lord to deliver his people and belief. You, You see the parallel? This is parallelism, which means what's said in the first line, who has believed our message, is then restated in a different way in the second line. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, you want the power of God to deliver you? All you have to do is believe. This is why it's so hard to grasp this message. No, 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 that's great. Believe and what? Like, what else do you want me to do? Let me, hey, let's partner up in this salvation thing, Lord. And he's like, no, it's not going to work that way. It's all of Jesus or none of Jesus. 
it's all of grace, or you get nothing. You try to bring your own works to your salvation and you're standing before God and you get nothing. All we have to do is just simply receive from him. And we're called over and over and over again to believe, to believe, to believe in the gospel. And I need to believe that we're going to run out of time if I don't move on. Notice what it says here in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And think about this. We esteemed him not. The son of God, the Lord of glory, so esteemed you and me, sinners that we are, that he would give his life for us, and yet inherent to mankind is this, we esteemed him not. This is the gospel. This is the depth of our own lack of ability, our own rebellion against God, and yet the love of Christ for us. But we esteemed him not. Jesus, this servant, comes of humble origins and sorrowful. What's, what I think is hard for us to grasp is that in the person of Jesus Christ, we read this, he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then the Bible also reveals to us that he is the most joyful being that has ever existed. Complete communion with God the Father. And I would just say to you today, if you're struggling, if you feel like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm in the word I'm doing my devotions. I'm coming after Jesus and time and time again I find myself sorrowful. It doesn't mean that you're less than the rest of the Christians or let me just say this, probably what's happened is all of us are wrestling with sorrow at some level, at some time or all the time. But this is the truth that Jesus himself was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And if we have been called to follow Jesus, which means that what it means to be a Christian is we trust in Jesus and then we're simply living our life going, okay, I'm following after him. He's my example. I want to follow and be like him because I have no greater good than to become like him. Then we're going to have sorrow and we're going to have grief. But here's the thing. It's okay. It's hard. It stinks. Nobody likes it. But the hope of the gospel is this. Because he has completely taken our grief. Because he has completely bore our sorrow. Therefore, when he comes back and the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in, all of that sorrow, all of that grief, that is rightly ours. That is rightly due humanity because of our sin and rebellion. All of that has been paid for so that the great hope of the Christian life is that when he comes back, this will be swallowed up with death in victory. Every tear will be wiped away and there will be no no more space in all of creation for any sorrow or sadness. Jesus has paid it all. Because he was acquainted with grief and sorrows, our sorrows, our grief, we have a hope that there is a time coming when they will be completely wiped away. We continue in verse 4. Surely he has bore our griefs. There it is. Carried our sorrows. That word carried. In, in the book of Leviticus, which is like the legal code for God's people Israel, right? In the book of Le Leviticus, there's this event that would take place once a year, and it was called the Day of Atonement. And what would happen on the Day of Atonement is that there would be two goats that would be offered up, and one of them 
Both, both of them, actually, there would be a laying on of hands on these, which symbolized the transferring of the sins from God's people onto this animal. And so then one of these goats would be put to death, symbolizing the wages of sin is death, symbolizing what was necessary that needed to take place because of sin. And you remember what happened with the other one? It was sent away. It was carried away. Actually, this is where we get our word scapegoat. One of them escaped. It got to go. And that symbolized the carrying away, the putting away of the sins of God's people. And that's what it says here, that he carried our sorrows. So if you're in here today and you're sorrowful, just know this. There's coming a time because of what Jesus did, the way that Jesus took your pain and your sorrow and carried it away. There's coming a time when it's going to be so far gone, you won't even remember that it ever existed Now that's something I can get behind. That's a hope that I can sink my teeth into. Now, what we want to notice in these next few verses is this. This is where it really picks up. This is the hymn for us. Hymn for us. And this is the heart of the gospel. What Jesus has done for us. He suffered in our place. You may hear this term thrown around in churches or if you're reading through Christian books or whatever, it's the term called substitutionary atonement. And it sounds big. It simply means that Jesus was our substitute. Atonement? Atonement is just a, a word that means how we get back right with God. Atonement has to be made. As a matter of fact, uh, some Christian theologians and writers would say this. Just look at the word, at one meant. How do we get back to be at one with God, not separated because of our sins? And so the idea of substitutionary atonement is simply this, that in order for us to be made right with God, there had to be a substitute in our place because we were incapable and unable of doing it ourselves. Listen to what's said here. He, he was pierced for our transgressions. Now as we work through this, there is going to be a continual theme here. Him for us, him in our place. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. It's like Isaiah here, inspired by the Spirit of God, is just reeling for words to help us to feel how horrific it was for Jesus, and yet how good it is for us. What we get because of what he has done. John Owen said this, the purpose of our holy and righteous God was to save his church, but their sin could not go unpunished. It was therefore necessary, says Owen, that the punishment for sin be transferred, now listen to this, here's transferred, from those who deserved it but could not bear it. We could not bear our sin in the sense of this. There was no way possible that we could ever do anything to make up for our sin, to bear it in such a way as to alleviate the wrath of God and have any hope of ever getting out from under that wrath. We could not bear it. So Owen says, it was necessary, therefore, that the punishment for sin be transferred from them who deserved it but could not bear it to one who did not deserve it but was able to bear it. And that's the gospel. We deserved everything that Jesus took, all of the punishment. 
We deserved it. We couldn't bear it. There was no way in our frail, weak, and sinful humanity that we could ever get out from under the punishment because sin against an infinite and eternal God demands an infinite and eternal punishment. Have you, have you ever heard somebody say, how is it that your sin committed in time, that this, this temporary thing that you did demands an eternal punishment? It just can't be right. What kind of a God would do that? It's a misunderstanding of the nature of sin. And sin primarily is offense against a person, not offense done in time. You see the difference? If it was just merely how long you sinned, and it had no regard to who you sinned against or who you offended, then sure, yeah, it might be time for time. But the reality is this. Sin is measured by the one whom we have sinned against, not the duration of the sin. A murder can take place in an instant, and a life is taken forever. And so Owen clearly gets at the heart of the gospel in that statement. We could not bear the weight of our sin, but because Jesus is not only fully man, but fully God, which is to say eternal, almighty, infinite, he was able to bear up under the infinite wrath of God for us. He, in his fully divine person, in all of his infinite majesty contained now in frail humanity, was able to both die, which was necessary, but also to absorb that eternal wrath of God in our place. And so the incarnation of our Lord Jesus is absolutely central to the faith. And when I say incarnation, all I mean is Jesus taking on human flesh, being fully God and fully man, is fully necessary. And this is why the church has demanded that if you're going to be orthodox from the beginning of the church, that you have to believe that, the deity and humanity of Jesus. I need to move on. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I didn't grow up in church, but my kids did. And it's so hard for me to read. This is such a powerful verse in many ways. But there is this Sunday school song. And I, I'm not a very good singer, so I'm not going to like torture you guys with this. But all oh, we like sheep have gone astray. And this is ba, ba, ba. And so I read this, and I'm trying to get away from that, like the little Sunday school rhyme. Because what's being said here is so powerful. There is a book in the Old Testament called the Book of Judges comes right on the heels of Joshua. Joshua is all about the conquest of God's people in the promised land of Canaan. And what happened was, is God told them, you need to wipe out everybody in here. And they weren't faithful to that. They didn't trust God. And in the book of Judges, it begins this way, that each man did what was right in his own eyes. And by the time you get to the book of Judges, if there is one section of Scripture, a chapter or two at the end of Judges, that will rival Lamentations for the horrific depiction of the results of sin, it's the book of Judges. And I'm not going to give you all of the gruesome details, but go to the end of the book of Judges and read it and see the effects of sin on God's people. Things that you will read if you're not familiar with it and go, there is no way that's in the Bible. And it's in the Bible. And it's terrifying. And it says at the very beginning, everybody did what was right in their own sight. And now hear what this text says. All we 
Like sheep have gone astray, each one of us has turned to his own way. In other words, the same sin that plagued God's people in the book of Judges that led to that kind of horrific, terrible thing taking place is in the heart of each one of us. This also is what makes the gospel so hard to believe. The gospel says each one of us are so flawed, so broken, so prone to go away from God and not towards him, so prone prone to move away from righteousness and not towards it, that this is the condition of all of us and that that horrific thing had to happen to Jesus if we have any chance of being saved. And that's hard for people to grasp onto. But I would say this, if that's not true, If all of us have not gone astray like that, then it's not a message that's open to all. But here's the thing. It's there for all to receive grace. Like Jesus died and anybody who wants to believe that can come. And this is why the church is made up of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, every different social class and economic class and hierarchy and standing and wherever you come from, background, it doesn't matter. Disabilities, no disabilities, who cares? We're all broken. And so Jesus dies so that all can receive grace. And so because because the Bible says we're all broken, it means then that the floodgates of grace are open to all. And so you see somebody out there and you think, oh, there's no way. They're just too far. Just stop yourself right there. It's not true. All of us. And, and then when you see them, take a moment to just embrace that humility. That's me. That's my heart. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. The way that the Apostle Paul says it in Ephesians is that we were dead in our transgressions and each one of us were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is what we deserve and this is the glory though of the gospel that Jesus knew that. This is not catching God off guard. He knows our hearts and he has loved us in spite of that. He was oppressed, verse seven. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. That's hard for me to imagine. Like I'm open my mouth all the time. Ask my wife if she was here. Especially when you, do you ever have that like somebody's accusing you of something and you know, you know they're wrong and they're just out to get you. What is the hardest thing in the world to do? Be quiet. That's why we read in 1 Peter you know what Jesus did? He knew they were wrong. I mean, he'd never done anything wrong in his life. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter whatever accusation was brought against him. You could bring some accusations against me, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's right. That was me. Not Jesus. But you know what he did? It said he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus knew there's a plan. God's doing something here. By oppression, verse eight, and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? That term cut off is used. In the prophet Ezekiel, he talks about it. There's this vision in Ezekiel where Ezekiel looks out over this valley and he sees down below, and you know what he sees? Just a valley of dry, dead bones. And it talks about how God's people had been cut off cut off and now they're dead they're just there but you know what the bones did something the vision didn't end there Ezekiel continues to look out and all of a sudden the bones start to move there's a wind blowing the bones start to move and all of a sudden bone comes back to bone and now there's ligaments and joints and skin and there's this resurrection life from these bones in that valley and God told Ezekiel that's what I'm going to do with my people but he had to do it with his servant first 
And so, yeah, he was cut off from the land of the living, but there was a third day coming. There was a glorious resurrection that was coming. And that word right there, that simple little statement alludes to that. Verse nine, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Jesus hangs in the middle of three crosses, doesn't he? And on each side of him is a rightly convicted criminal. Sinners on each side of them. And now we, we hear that and we think about it and we're often led to, you remember the, the uh, Lord, let me be with you in paradise. And Jesus says, okay, forgives him. And by his faith, he's with Jesus. But what we lose sight of is think of the visual picture. Jesus willingness to identify to the utmost with sinners. And so he's placed on the cross, not by himself, but with sinners. He had to identify with sinners. He had to completely wear our identity to completely bear our sins. And then verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. In spite of his sinlessness, in spite of all of that, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. If you're a parent in here, you can wrestle with a little bit of the depth of that. Like, could you imagine doing that to your child? And the answer is probably no. I hope it's no. It's a part of our humanity, hopefully, that it's no. But, but what the father was willing to do, as a parent, what's harder your grief or your children's grief. And it's a no-brainer for most people. To watch your children suffer is the climax and the highest possible grief that a parent could have. So when we hear that it was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief, don't lose sight of the Lord's grief in that, how hard it was. But here's the thing. Here's the end game. He did it. He did it for us. It was the only way that we could now be adopted in as children. And so then it simply finishes this, without of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The father, satisfied with the offering of the son. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, and here's the heart of it. This is what everything was leading to, and we'll close with this. He will make many accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we can be accounted righteous. We can be declared by God to be in the right and not guilty, although we know ourselves, only because he has bore our iniquities. This is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Him for us. Jesus for us. If you don't remember anything else, remember that. It's easy to get caught up when you talk to people in all of the debates about morality and, and ethics and all of this and, and who's right and who's wrong and, and easy to get swallowed up. If you can simply bring the conversation back to that, he died for us. Then you're, you're on solid footing because then you can tell people about the love of God. He died for us. About the hope that we have. He died for us. We deserve punishment. There's hope. He died for us. You can tell people. Uh, all of this other stuff aside about the truth and the most central things that are important. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He died for us. He died for us. And this will do something else for us. Because he died for us, it will foster humility, won't it? And we'll close with this quote from John Stott. John Stott said this, 
Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Our sin put Jesus on the cross. Before we can see the cross as something done for us, for our benefit, you'll never understand the gospel, nobody will, unless we see the cross as something done by us. Our transgressions on Jesus for our healing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel, Lord. I know myself. I know my sin. And my only hope is that Jesus paid it all. And now all to him I owe. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.